You're listening to a Scottish Poetry Library podcast. Intine. Nirvami Savunskol, Hermitinia Shelvintane, Frankurin Machlan, Scrive Jescotian Paper. Hinkainak Merinoch. Achir chodrus va ysglwch, gyn anamyr yn ysgniwfr yn y loim a machas mae'r frat yn y lion. Ir gynfalaf mochanain, ysnaf gwsiri gyda chi chaelch, na'm chion hyntynyr myrgych, sgachig ysglwch gyn frisig saelch. The tin. When I was in primary school, I got myself this little flat tin where I'd stashed my words writ on splinters of paper. What I remember is not the design, but how difficult it was to open, without names and deeds leaping out like salmon from a net. The dumb babble of my languages, forever swimming towards their lost ground, the tin in my head rusting not to be opened, without breaking its crust of salt. Hello and welcome to the final Scottish Porch Library podcast of 2017. My name is Colin Waters and I'll be your host for the next 30 minutes. I think our podcast series this year has had a pretty good run. Nice and varied, with podcasts featuring interviews with Deep Breath, Fanny Capaldeo, Vicky Husband, William Letford, Jim Carruth, J.L. Williams, Joni Wallace, Sinead Morrissey, Henry Marsh and Hera Lindsay Bird. We also recorded two specials. Our When Russia Met Scotland podcast brought together Jen Hadfield, Stuart Sanderson and Christine DeLuca with three fascinating Russian poets, Marina Borodskaya, Gregory Kurshkov, and Lev Oberin. It was really fantastic to meet and speak with them, to hear their poetry, at a time when Russia is in the headlines for all the wrong reasons. Our other special, Umbrellas of Edinburgh, brought together a cast of thousands to read specially written poems, all in the theme of Scotland's fair capital. So what do we have lined up for our final podcast of 2017 then? Well, it's a treat all right. We have an interview with poet Peter Mackay. Peter is a native Gaelic speaker from the Isle of Lewis. He is an academic, writer and broadcaster whose work is influenced by the diverse linguistic heritage of his birthplace. He's worked for the Seamus Heaney Centre for Poetry at Queen's University Belfast and he's also worked as a journalist and television news producer for the BBC which, as you'll hear, is touched upon during the interview. In terms of his own writing, he's the author of a monograph on the work of Sorley MacLean, and he's co-edited collections of essays on modern Irish and Scottish poetry, uh, as well as Scottish Gaelic literature. With Ian S. McPherson, he co-edited The Light Blue Book, an anthology of Scottish Gaelic love and transgressive poetry, and that was published in 2016 by Lewith Press. His own poetry first appeared in a pamphlet from another island, uh, which was published in 2010 by the Clutag Press. And uh, for the purposes of this podcast, perhaps uh, I should really mention that his uh, debut collection, full-length collection, Galore, was published by Acare, and you'll be hearing poems from that throughout the podcast, including the one that you heard at the top of the show, uh, which is called, in English, The Tin. And uh, the interview uh, begins with us discussing how it relates to his childhood on Lewis. Peter, you grew up on Lewis. If I ask what was that like, I'm asking that in the light of the poem you just read, The Tin, where, you know, you've got this portrait of a schoolboy who puts words away in a metal tin which then spill out when opened, 
with something similar going on with Gaelic, which you're a native speaker of. Well, literally, I was really lucky to have a great primary school teacher who did actually make us have these wee tobacco tins where we put words <laughs> it's in. It's not a poetic conceit. It's not a poetic conceit. My, my mother found the tin after I showed her the poem at some point. Oh, I've got that tin upstairs, um, and, and I don't want to know what words are actually in it, because I've just got it as the memory, but it exists out there. But there is obviously a conceit going on as well. Um, I was a Gaelic speaker first. And then by the time I went to school, English was my first language and I almost had to learn Gaelic again. So there's this strange ghosting of my own past in my awareness of language. There's almost the sense of the perfect, native, absolutely fluent, natural Gaelic speaker I once was. Mm -hmm. And then from about the age of seven or eight, the young boy who had to learn Gaelic again. That must be a really strange process to have a language... Entirely. Now, I'm trying to think if it could happen to me as an English speaker, you know, to lose that language, which is your first language, and then so soon again have to learn it again. I mean, what does that do to your relationship with it? It makes it complicated. It makes both languages alien. Right. Um, in some ways. And in, looking back, youthful ways, um, at the time, it was complicated in terms of pronunciation of some sounds. Um, mm. So I couldn't pronounce yellow. It would always be thello, yeah. because I was taking over um, Gaelic pronunciations into English and vice versa. And so there was some interference, but nothing that, now looking back, wasn't helpful and um, fructive, because it allowed you always to have the sense of two different worlds going on around you, mm. um, and two different ways of approaching those worlds. So you said you, it's almost like an alien relationship with both, both languages. Is that useful as a writer, to have that sort of distance from your language, or um, is it a handicap, in fact? Well, there's the old saw that a poet or someone who writes poetry is somebody who finds the language difficult, Mm. that this is one of the crucial things for you to actually be able to explore the nooks and crannies of a language is to always be looking at it aslant, awry, not taking it for granted not taking it at face value. Mm-hmm. And so I think the self-awareness or the distance from language is always going to be useful. What's your relationship with poetry? Was it something you got into at a young age or was it something you came to later on? It was something I got into at a young age, um, either through songs, as we all get into songs early, or through reading... I think I can barely remember a time when I wasn't reading poetry of some kind mm-hmm. or where I didn't actually have an interest in these narrow shapes of words down pages or the memorizable parts of language as well, to put it really, really broadly, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and from a young age, reading the works, say, of Ian Crichton Smith and then Dylan Thomas and then T.S. Eliot, it was about 13, 14 when I started thinking of them as things that you could perhaps actually do yourself. And so writers like Ian Crichton Smith or Shirley MacLaine, did they have a special place within this, you know, your dawning personal pantheon of writers because they wrote in Gaelic? Yes and no. Um, to some extent, having the the two languages, you have two different pantheons that you relate to two different mm. types of thinking about the world. And it, for me, it was only later that they started to come and merge into um, a coherent whole. And so you'd have Dylan Thomas on the one hand, or you'd have Elizabeth Bishop on the one hand, and then you'd have... Um, not necessarily Crichton Smith or, 
or Slavon McLean, it was much a more locally renowned author, like right. the short story writer Ian Morrow and mm. John Murray from The Next Village Along, who's a fantastic short story writer, the novelist and short story writer Tram the Voxer, mm. Norman Campbell from Ness. Mm. Um, and much of Norman Campbell's work hasn't been translated into English, and it's brilliant. Right. And so in some ways what you develop is a sense of different types and scales and scopes of literature. You've got the Nobel Prize winners on the one hand, and then you've got the guy in the next village who happens to be an incredibly skilled short story writer. It's not something a lot of us can say about the guy in the next village. Yeah. I think this is one of the advantages of, say, not just growing up in Lewis, but growing up speaking Gaelic. Um, you can get into the whole point of the pressures that there are on people speaking or working in a language where there are only 50 or 80,000 speakers. But one of them is that you take more risks. Mm. You start believing that it might be a bit more important and it might be part of your work to actually try to express the world through this language. So uh, I mentioned him a second ago, Sorley McLean, you've written a monograph on, on McLean. What sort of role does he play, you know, in your own writing? Is he a, a, a touchstone? Is he someone you keep coming back to? Is it the, the figure of him as someone who was writing in Gaelic, you know, at a time when in Britain, nationally, Gaelic poets were absolutely, um, what would you say, pushed to the, to the, the margins? I mean, you've given a good explanation of the, the importance of local writers within a local context, but here was someone who was starting to emerge from that. Is that a continuing inspiration? I think one of the important things about Sonny McLean for any Gaelic writer is that not just his own ability, and he was a fantastic writer with a great um, range of vocabulary, but his interests, the breadth of his interests, um, international politics, world politics, philosophy, and that he was taken seriously, mm. and he was taken seriously outside the Gaelic world. And so he is an example of what can happen, of writing in Gaelic is not an impediment to being read all over the world, not an impediment to your work being taken seriously. And this is one of the main things that I get from the image of Maclean. Mm. Um, he was, I was um, 17 years old when he died, so I never met him. And so there's almost this slightly strange, he's just before me. Mm. And if I'd been um, five, six years older, I might have had the personal relationship of I met the man as well as the legend. Um, and so I would have a slightly different attitude to him, I think. And that space is partly what allowed me to write a book on him. Because it is always more difficult when you have the personal relationship in between. Um, and so in terms of writing a monograph on him, it was an act of celebration, an act of homage, but at the same time, the will is, is always going to be, a, well, push my space here. Mm. And I really admire and respect a lot of what Sonny McLean did, or Sam McLean did, but it's not all for me. And so part of it was marking that space for myself to be able to do my own writing. I want to ask you about the poem, The Log Roller, in a second, but maybe that's a good moment to hear that poem. The Log Roller. You're the centuries logger and reaver, balanced between English and Gaelic. A frontiersman with each foot on a log, rolling inexorably down the Mackenzie. 
Sometimes your speech is quietly frenzied, but sometimes it is subtle, right, and winding, as when John Monroe wrote about mob caps of snow in the mountains, of ascent in the mid-1910s, in Gaelic the English unsaid. But like a horse slick stepped, yet slipshod, in two styles you stumble and falter, unless, no turning back, you go further, at cant to creole to parole to lang, and skipping from word to logos to log, roll your unbearable hall down the river. That poem's a nice, I think, summation of the situation by lingual poets find themselves in. You stumble and falter unless, no going back, you go further. So do you have to, is this your sort of talking to yourself as much as to the reader? This is what you have to do, Peter, you have to go further. Yeah, it's part of the mythos of adventure mm. that is involved in any act of writing, I would say, but also if you are a bilingual writer, if you've got two languages, why stop? And why stop at those two? Why not pull in other languages, other complexity, other complication? And you never know quite what you're doing when you're writing, or I assume that nobody knows quite what they're doing. There is always this sense of going into the unknown. And it's a balancing act that can always go badly wrong, or funnily, hilariously wrong at different points. And it's just trying to find the most interesting ways you can to keep all of those plates spinning. Mm, or those logs rolling. Um, so, Kieran Carson translated three of the poems in the collection into English. How would you describe that experience, seeing your poems given a once-over by another writer? It was good. Um, I, I knew Kieran beforehand, and so I approached him diffidently. <laughs> in that way, it's the, I was working the Seamus Heaney Centre for Poetry at the time, and he was the director, and he had this large, almost gold prospector's desk in front of him, and you felt like you were turning up with diamonds, and you would go and look at them. And mm. so I said, would you mind publishing these poems in the yellow nib? And he went, well, I might, but I might fancy going over them myself. Mm. So I left him to it, and... He drew things out of the poems that I never would have myself. If I was to come to translate them again myself, would they be the same as he did? No, because I would always find different things anyway. But I really enjoyed the process of somebody rewriting what, at the time, was your own pristine. I am the poet writing these things, mm. words. And then having that changed into, actually, these aren't your words at all. These are, these are an idea that can get shifted about. I enjoy the collaborative process of that, even though I wasn't involved in it. I thought it was very interesting that one of the poems he chose was, in English it would be Polis, Polis, I suppose, in Scots. <laughs> Scots is Polis. But, um, you know, because for someone who lives in Northern Ireland, this sort of, uh, the theme or the story of the poem, I guess, about a policeman turning up and arresting a farmer for having an unlicensed shotgun and it ends with the children possibly eating each other, that's quite a sort of uh, a Goya-esque, or, or you know, feral, ferocious take on, on, on that situation. Was he attracted, do you think, for his, historical reasons? Or, I mean, apart from the fact you liked the poem. I'm not going to second-guess why no. he was uh, attracted by it, but he, in his own work, he's very aware of the relationship between language and violence. Yeah, he did a fantastic translation of Danny. So you're in good company here. I, I, I was delighted to have him translating my work, put him in, my, in that company. Yeah. Um, I think the, the relationship between language and violence and how language is not a pristine medium, but it is implicated in things, may have been something that struck a chord. Mm. Um, the other thing that he got was that that's a poem about the Iraq war. 
Oh, right. right. Um, and so the getting rid of the DA for the unlicensed gun is a uh, replication in West Coast Scotland or Northern Irish terms of the search for weapons of mass destruction, which weren't there. Right, oh gosh, it went over my head, I'm afraid. I'm a f- but you have to know how long ago that was written for <laughs> to have any, any sense of where that was in. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't but fancy putting that in a footnote anyway. Well, you know, for me it's works very nice as a sort of nightmarish kind of fable, you know, which I guess is <laughs> what were the times we're living in, a nightmarish fable. I can only imagine what Goya would have made mm. of the Iraq War or of Syria or of these moments of civil war that I don't think we fully process. No. Um, both of us have worked as journalists mm-hmm. and so both of us are to some extent inured, I would say, to um, stories of death and carnage and destruction. Um, I remember when I was working at the BBC, certainly every single day for about a year, I was doing stories on Iraq or mm. on um, Gaddafi or on some tragedy after another or some horror after another. And in, to some extent, we do or we are accustomed to pushing them to one side rather than mm. looking at them face on in the way that Goya would have done, say. Nightmarish fables are perhaps all that I, living in Scotland, could create to start to begin to look at them or talk about them. Mm. I, I have no right to say anything else. But it's, it's interesting, you know, um, if you look at journalism, you look at poetry, you're right, you have to, to be able to process information of an almost emotional callous, I suppose. Uh, but is that, I would have imagined, you know, the stereotypical image of the poet is, you know, someone who's almost got one or two less layers of skin, you know, that they're, they're receiving this. So you've got the journalist on the one hand, the poet on the other. Is this just uh, an outdated notion or how did you make it work? I think poetry is porous. Poetry is leaky. And I think to write poetry, you have to be leaky. You have to let more in and you have to let more write than you would normally be comfortable mm-hmm. with. And in some ways, doing journalism was exactly the opposite of trying to write poetry. Mm. Um, Because what you're having to do is keep a control um, and keep things as simple and as direct and as factual as possible. Mm. Um, And so when I worked as a journalist, I didn't write that much poetry because I was having to use language in entirely different ways and the leap between each of them was difficult. There's something about journalism, you know, uh, it's a craft, a trade, a profession you can learn. You have to have some native talent or else you're never going to get anywhere. But um, it uses up quite a lot. I mean, you, even though it's a job, it uses up a lot of your inner resources, doesn't it? You know, it's not like you can just turn off, as you say. Uh, it's Even though you might think it's something you could do professionally and you go home and all that, it's still using up a lot of your sort of what keeps you going, you know, and it doesn't leave a lot of room for other things afterwards, I think. For to be any good at journalism, you have to like other people. I don't know, but the, you have to spend a lot of time thinking, okay, yeah. how, how is this other person in this situation, what are they going through? You have to do something similar in poetry, but the approach is almost the other way around. Mm. Um, and it takes up an awful lot of imaginative resource. And I think working full-time as a journalist say, it would be very difficult to be able to change your gears mm-hmm. and be able to um, write as if you like other people in different ways. 
So, you know, keeping on with the subject of translation after Kieran Carson, I mean, how do you do it yourself? Do you write a poem in English and then go to Gaelic or Gaelic English? Is there no set manner for this? Have you done half a poem in one language, half in another? How do you, how do, you do this? What's the process? There is no singular process. I start depending on what language the poem appears in in the first instance, whether it is an image, a word, a sound, a, a cadence, a rhythm, whatever is going to be, and I start in that language. And sometimes I will get to the end of it, and then, ah, this is a finished thing, and then think, does this work in another language? Sometimes they are abandoned and go, no, it doesn't. It can only be itself. Sometimes then I um, switch over and translate. For me, the more interesting ones are when it isn't that clear cut mm. and when almost as part of the process of writing or the process of getting stuck or having writer's block, I switch halfway through. Oh, yeah. And so I'll write a stanza in Gaelic, say, okay, okay, this works as a stanza, but I don't know where I'm going from there. Write it in English. And then a conversation begins between both of them. Oh, yeah, that's fascinating, actually. I'd know, I just had this sort of idea that you might just do one solely in English and then go, now I'll do the Gaelic, but now that I see there's a, quite a fruitful interplay between the two. There can be a fruitful interplay, which quite often means that my translations are far from honest. Um, there, there is quite often quite a wide divergence between the two texts. And so at the moment, say I've got a poem in Gaelic, there's a short story in English. Um, and so it's all an entirely different form. But it's the process of trying to think mm -hmm. through the, the parallels between them, feedback into what you might like to call the original, what was never an original anyway, because it's still ongoing. Let's have another poem. From another island. They pulled them from the sea out at Malayre on a Cotherai Sunday afternoon. The men folk in starch black, the women flattened hats on their way back from the English service. The Balichai went into their knees, salt water singeing their calves, and steered his body gently to the shore, untangled the hair hall and with the tender horror of a parent, lifted him over the rack to the stones. He was naked but for the rough bounds holding his hands behind him, moulding his legs together into a tail at the ankle. A linen sheet was found to spare their shame. It was Ian Verhi that recognised him, as his own great-great-grandfather lost at sea over a century ago, Murakabaki and Hwanialik. The brine had kept his skin, turned his innards to aspic, and by some god awful miracle returned him intact to the island. It has not been talked on since. Too vivid still, his sea-swollen dick and blue tinged on the map of his back, the imprint, Homini, Kodati, Hick. So we were talking about, we were mentioning fables earlier on, <laughs> that poem is quite like a fable as well. I mean, it's interesting, you've got this body that gets dragged out of the sea, unless I've misunderstood, dragged out of the sea, and instead of people going, oh my God, <laughs> that's so-and-so who lived two generations ago, he's perfectly preserved, they're more exercised by his, his nudity, which is interesting, because you've got a run of poems in this, this collection that have a sort of, I guess you'd say, an erotic pulse or an interest in, in carnality. I think it climaxes, and that is the right word, of uh, your poem, a found poem called The Irish Censor's Day Off. What's going on there, Peter? What are you, what's your interest? Why do you keep coming back to these things? In thematic terms, I like the pairing back, mm. the bearing. I like the, the exposing. Um, and there is something 
wonderfully exposed about Lewis as an island, mm. um, barren and bare to the sea and to the, um, and then to the sky, and there are though it is fabulous, it's purely made up. Um, there are some minor um, biographical impulses in there, and so lots of swimming naked in the sea happens in Lewis as well, but lots of disproving looks <laughs> from old men from cliff tops going. <laughs> What the hell? Yeah, what the hell? <laughs> and, and then you find them looking for longer than you might normally expect in this kind of thing. So I, I think there's a wonderful... Um, I'm really interested in the repression that there mm-hmm. is in Scotland as a whole, but in the west, northwest of Scotland and the, the Hebrides in particular, and how what that repression is hiding mm-hmm. and covering. Um, and there is a, there's a strong erotic tradition in Gallic literature, especially, which I have written a book on or have co edited. Give us the title of it and the other co editor. Um, so there is a strong um, erotic tradition, yes. Gallic tradition as well, and Gallic poetry as well, which I co edited a book in your year with um, Ian McPherson, um, which looks at 500 years of the transgressive or the erotic or the rude or whatever adjective you want to use, depending on who you're talking to. Um, and I'm really interested in the way that that has always been a part of Catholic culture, as it is any culture, but has been twisted over the last 200 years, has been bodlerized or has had a very prim cult put over it. Mm. And I think one of the things that I hope to do in my poems, which now looking back at it rather than as a principal when writing them, was to talk about things that I had not heard necessarily talked about openly, honestly, when I was younger. The epigraph to uh, Galore mixes Octavio Paz and, and Lorca. And in notes you write of finding, in their words, a parallel with Lewis, between Lewis and, and Spain that is quote-unquote strangely familiar. You know, anyone like myself who's lived in Scotland, that's an eye-raiser, you know. Any sort of connection between anywhere in Scotland and, and Spain is, is, is interesting. Well, first of all, maybe read it out, because it's quite short, isn't it? And then maybe explain what your, the affinity was that you saw between, you know, Lewis and, and the words of those two, two great writers. Hamachaschim sintracho a fuomnachach anasratili, farnkleinmi machaschim et olshachet sintracho, farnachan dat fir achankyo. Hambalchashirgu, she agreed in Groland. An umbrenishke shiriagu and baloch. Can you make a yearish umbrien? Nimi fanule, shahokas mohoster mohorak feek. An umbrenishke shiriagu and baloch. Hanku brechenoch, father falaf, nageshe rolanoch. I think there are two different things. I think the whole Latin American tradition of a magical realism that you can see partly coming out of Lorca's mm. work as well, um, plays very much into the fabulous element of Scottish and Highland and Gaelic culture, the idea of two worlds uh, mapped or parallel in each other and being able to use the resources of both of those. I map the desert of Andalusia onto the Moorish influence in my mind. And there's something similar about the crossing of the desert between towns. Um, Lorca's sensation of Cordoba been so near and yet so far and then the moving across these moorlands where you can see the distances but it's going to take you twice as long to get there. Mm. Um, myself and my partner spent quite a lot of time up in the Sierra Nevada 
up near the snow line above a town called Alpujara, or in Alpujara, a town called Travelas in Alpujara. And this is not the Andalusia or the Spain of beaches and oranges. This is um, bare survival. This is snow line for four months of the year, and when it melts, you discover the cars that have gone off the roads and kinds of things. And it's that level of um, risk, that level of being close to a natural environment that actually does not know you exist or care that you exist. It's mapping the bog onto the desert, and you end up having something similar. There's an, there's an awful lot of duende in Gala culture, the Andalusian sense of the, the inexpressible essence of being. And if you listen to the Gaelic psalm singing, where you've got these different voices come together into this um, atonal cry of existence, there's duende there as well. Uh, so I'll just finish by saying uh, I, I see a very attractive and um, mildly bulging uh, folder there, Peter. Is that new work? Now you come to mention it. Um, yes, yes, there are new works. So I'm, I'm, I've hopefully finished, or I'm coming close to finishing a second collection. But the poems are out there being read by some people I trust. Well, I trust at the moment. Mm-hmm. When I get their opinions back, I don't know if I'll still trust them, but it's that kind of um, process. You're never being sure when something exists or not, mm. or when something is there. So is there any dramatic changes in this one? Do you have other areas? Or are you going deeper? As we say in the poem, no going back, you go further, you go deeper into what you've, you've started in the first book. Going deeper, I, I actually get into repetition mm. and the idea of repetition a lot. Um, and so The three R's, repetition, the, repetition, repetition. <laughs> exactly, and, it's the, and so I think I've got two or three poems that have the same name. Um, so it's one idea will get played about over the course of the manuscript as it is now is, and I don't know where I end up with that. And the poem that I think will be the last poem in the book actually ends on the words Glior, Galore. Ah, so it's going right back yeah, to yeah. the first book as well. I'm not entirely comfortable with this, but there's something going on with the difficulties of saying something again. Mm. or the difficulties of saying something anew because you can never say something anew. And especially when you're translating your own work, then everything you're doing is this strange, weird repetition and transformation of something that's come before. And that's it, folks, for another podcast and another year. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and the preceding 11. Let's hope 2018 brings us another 12 interviewees as lively, lovely and talented. Some thank yous before we take ourselves off to Overdose on Mince Pies and Sherry. Firstly, thanks to Peter Mackay, who, as you can hear, is a charming interviewee. Galore, which is published by Acare, is available to buy in all good bookshops or to borrow from the SPL. Thanks to you, dear listener. Whether you were ironing, walking to work or in the bath, I hope our podcasts this year have diverted you for a half hour or so at a time. And thanks to my dear friend Will Campbell, who wrote, produced and played on our podcast theme tune. Will, if you're listening, I want you to know I really appreciate it. Okay, that's that then. In time on a tradition, we're going to end the show uh, on one last poem. But before we do that, let me remind you that in addition to the SPL's website, which can be found at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk, in addition to that... We have various social media platforms in which you can check in with us. So uh, we do Twitter. The Twitter tag is at By Leaves We Live. 
We have a Facebook page, uh, Scottish Poetry Library, that seems straightforward enough. And we have an Instagram page, which is SPL Scotland, and you can see all kinds of interesting images of the library, our books, poets, and whatnots. If you tune into our Instagram page, if you follow us, we'll follow you back. That's the deal. Anyway, so uh, this brings us right to the end of our podcast, and I'm now going to hand over to Peter for that last poem. A hurrying of at the show. A hurrying of at the show strange, you can do bike. Gusrad no more, you go, shakatur and loss a cranog, thrown a million and gaye. Stashing a monge, you can form being a clondike or scubra, rather far hoste, from the crew red fagal. Let the val a drama than eva and doike, package space invaders, British corduroy, catalogue freemans, as great universal, fact and maloch crucianoch as garmalchoch, and york and Sven Hassel. As trahage can optic, here can train gian, hecknolus computer satchel, frisch caskanaster as double think, hurivorok and tracho, sraj fatherman scuttle. Er a heiser to the million dorish, burem bike aga, a heil little tool on a tavernar, on the har, on a yachty cultural har. Aurin of at the show scanger can the garguk turco u, the han on a valosher rash, a kid core a bakrian or kunus, a shot ulla syringed kehumach. A yerbo vor merut buck. A rin kafata shaw. Her yonsk vi jadekiki launch and fuskle jemma yaran. Gnavisulchen kor. Dick shachet. Naha kursh. Naha re. A rin kafata shaw. Shin fatakuyor. If you've got this far. If you've got this far, you must have borrowed a bike to make it past the Loch and Scranog, on the peat road through the turbines, over the moor to the bay where Klondikers lie anchored offshore. Your backpack full of childhood icons, a packet of space invaders, corduroys, a rusted three-iron, Freeman's catalogue and great universal, the Russian and German swears of Sven Hassel. And through optic fibres, high-speed train links, computer and satellite technology speeding and double-think, found this trashed-filled street. On the curb outside the door, you'll have left the bike, one wheel spinning in dead air, in the unrelenting horror, in the cultural history of that horror. If you've got this far, you must have utterly changed who you are, switched languages and switched back at the first sign of threat or attack into something that will pass for a mother tongue, something you think you remember from when you were young, but now in the night damp of this forever evening air, you realise you've let fewer people than you'd care to admit possess you, ripples welt up under your skin from the memory of your and their sins against the undimmable light. But all of this you can dismiss as the creating of unnecessary fuss. For if you've got this far, you've learned to treat open wounds as scars, learned not to hope for the sea. Ignore the smooth, ignore the rough. If you've got this far, that's far enough. Mm-hmm.
downloading this Scottish Poetry Library podcast. For further information about the Scottish Poetry Library, visit our website at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk, follow us on Twitter at By Leaves We Live, and find us on Facebook.